0: It's car con carne, let's eat in the car, it's car con carne, and now here's the star of our show, James Van Aster. All three hours? All three hours, got plenty of room on the phone. (laughs) And welcome to Carcone Carney, I'm James Van Hostel. Today's show broadcasting or recording from downstate in Springfield, Illinois, which is about 200 miles southwest of Chicago. And the show this week is sponsored by Siren Records McHenry, which is about... 50 miles northwest of Chicago. I'll see you at Siren Records for Record Store Day. Quick programming notes coming up next week. It is the first show back in the car since March 2020. Blake Coddington of the band Letdown. You've seen them explode all over social media. Blake Coddington of Letdown will be joining me for Hot Dogs next week. Also on Monday, Lucky Boys Confusion joins me. The return of LBC because this month is the 20th anniversary of their breakthrough, their major label debut, throwing the game. We'll talk about that. They've got a live stream planned for that and a documentary rolling out, which I may or may not be in. That is uh, Lucky Boys on Monday. I'm serious. I may be in it. I'm not sure. But meanwhile, yes, I'm in Springfield. I'm at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. Can your favorite podcast say that? I'm at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield for the State of Sound, a world of music in Illinois. My very first radio job was hosting a show called the Local Music Showcase. It was on q 101 Back in 1995, I was working at working as a programming assistant. I was making five bucks an hour, twenty hours a week. It was a dream gig. What happened back then? The host of that show, Carlo Leonardo, mutual friend, uh, wonderful woman uh, of my guest who we'll talk to shortly, uh, Carlo Leonardo, left the radio station, which left this vacancy for the local music show at Q101. The thing is, no one at the radio station, none of the full-time DJs wanted to do the show. There was no prestige. There was no glory in doing the local music show at like 11 o'clock on a Sunday night. So me, as a programming assistant, decided to audition to do the local music show. And to do the audition, I'd never done radio before. never done professional radio. I put together an audition tape. I went to Fireside Bowl to interview Loud Lucy. I went to Lounge X to interview Wesley Willis and I went to the elbow room to interview nubile things. I cobbled together some interview clips, submitted my demo, and I got the gig, which I was really proud of myself for doing at the time, but then I realized I was only competing against myself. Basically, my boss at the time just wanted to be sure that I could actually do this. Again, no one else wanted it, but the point is this. I've been involved with local music as part of my career from the get-go. I currently host Demo 312 on 101 WKQX, And in this podcast, in Carcon Carne, I devote a significant amount of episode time to independent musicians from the great state of Illinois. And so while my career has been very Chicago focused, the bottom line is Illinois music history is deep, it is influential, and it is amazing. I'm broadcasting from the floor of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library, again, here at the museum exhibit. My guest this week is the curator of the exhibit. He's a former coworker, he is a friend, he is a professional. He is Lance Tauser. Lance, I, I it's been forever. It is. It has. Welcome to the State of Sound. I'm here in the State of Sound in Bucolic Springfield, Illinois, the, the state capital. Let's let's just start from the beginning. What is the origin of this museum exhibit? Well, about a year and a half ago,
1: we were just, we had a gaping hole in the, in the schedule and uh, I'd love to take credit for coming up with the idea. And most people that, that have heard that I did this exhibit just assume that was my idea because I've been so connected with music for, for such a long part of my life, but it was not actually, uh, one of my, one of my uh, colleagues came to, came to one of our sort of round table meetings and it was just one of those little throw it on the table ideas at the time. We're like, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of great music from, from Illinois and, and that we kinda of bandied about it about and we went, Boy, you know and the more we talked about it, the more we thought, Oh, how are we gonna get our arms around that? Because if we wanna do a more, you know, comprehensive or inclusive kind of exhibit, it needs to include soul and it needs to include gospel, it needs to include, you know, hip hop and and everything and and the the more we rattled off different genres and different artists, we're like, oh, whew, that's, you know, that's a big, um, that's a big undertaking. So it took us a while to kind of get our arms around how we might approach it. And we already knew that no matter what we did, there were going to be, somebody's going to come in and. And go through the exhibit and go, you know, how come that Loud Lucy is not in this Always. show? You know, there's, or, or, or Head East or something, you know, there's somebody's going to come in with a chip on their shoulder.
0: I, I, I like that you already have those artists in mind. Like, you know what, <laughs> what those pain points are when people are, are going to come up with their list of complaints. Well, you just mentioned Loud Lucy. Nobody's really asked
1: about Loud Lucy, but somebody had come in and asked why we didn't include Head East. And I was,
0: I, you know, so. I probably
1: would have asked the same thing. <laughs> I'm sure you would have, cause you're a big fan. I know. Uh, I actually couldn't name
0: a heady song, but I know oh, sure. there's never were, been any reason. Uh, they did, oh yeah, they also before Rainbow had that big version of "Since You've Been Gone." Since they had, had been they gone. had success with that. Yep.
1: Yeah, you know we we and in the rock genre there was so many bands from Illinois. Oh I mean, my god! And, and in fact, I think the the kernel of idea that was thrown on the table was someone who really had a very narrow of what they thought Illinois music was. They thought it was REO, cheap trick you know, um, sticks pumpkins. and yeah. What, you know, sort of that middle of the road, uh, mm. well, not that smash pumpkins in the middle of the road, but like
0: the, we'll, the 70s, 80s AOR type. Sure. Thing. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, that wasn't, that was never going to be our, 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 focus. We really want people to come in with their own little set of tastes and, and discover some things that they didn't realize they had a connection to because either they live in Illinois or they are currently resigning or whatever. So, um, yeah we, we really wanted to challenge people uh, and, and you know there is there's music for everybody here, and there's definitely music that I'm sure people aren't that familiar with so and, and there's objects in here that people are like, well, "What the heck is that?" So hopefully people will minds will be a little bit expanded
0: I, I did a really cursory run through before we started recording, and we'll talk about the exhibit, but before we get to that, I, I thought about this as I was driving down here and as I was planning to come down here what what is it about? Local music, hometown music. What is it that makes people swell with hometown pride? That want to have bragging rights? And, and I, I broke it down to a couple of things. I think in the case of local music, it's it's part of our culture. It kind of defines who we are as people. When someone from Rockford can say, "Yeah, I grew up down the block from where Rick Nielsen first picked up a guitar," or someone from Alsip can say, "Hey, Muddy Waters is buried here." It's part of the culture. It's part of the fabric of who we are. And that makes us, there's that pride, that, that boastfulness.
1: Yeah, well, you you're hit the nail on the head. That's what I'm hoping for as one of our big takeaway messages is that if you didn't already have that uh, in the back, in your back pocket, you walk through this exhibit and hopefully you go, Wow, I never knew uh, Miles Davis was from Alton. I never knew this, I never knew that. And, and, and we, we decided that we were going to include artists that may not have been born in Illinois, but they focused their career here. And so, so for example, Muddy Waters. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, all the blues migration or jazz mm-hmm. migration people, uh, we we include Louis Armstrong. We include a lot of people, um, but they, you know, they Buddy Guy, um, all these people that sort of uh, launched their careers here or focused their careers here, um, they you know, it's funny, we've had people ask why Nat King Cole isn't in the exhibit because he lived in Chicago for a brief period of time. I think he was eight when he moved here and he was 15 when he left, so... <sighs> Not really an Illinois artist. Right. By the same token, you don't have anything from Petty Smith or Warren Zevon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and we do include people that that uh, like the Mekons is a strange story coming from the UK, you know, in nineteen eighty and, and sort of engulfing into the local culture. So they came from Europe with this, you know, punk thing and then they uh, come to the Midwest and suddenly become country.
0: Artists. Well, yeah. Suddenly, John Linkford is the patron saint of the Americana Renaissance. I know,
1: and he's from Wales, right? And, so, he's, and the yeah. Meccans
0: were such a cool artistic. Yeah, punk he, he's
1: still the coolest dude ever. He's actually going to uh, book a show in Springfield and and perform right here where we're standing. Uh, Get out! Yeah, he's he's this. And 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 you were asking me about the artifacts. Uh, so a lot of the artifacts that are in the exhibit, um, you know, we we had you know the byproduct of COVID was, and I never call it a benefit was when I went calling, um, people were home. Uh, so, uh, people, um, people who normally would be so busy in their lives or touring or getting ready to tour or recording or getting ready to record, got a weird email from some weird dude in Springfield and said, Hmm, maybe I'll loan him something. And, and the most impressive aspects of those are when people really think about what they want to loan us, and it has a good story. And um, we interviewed Tim McElrath from Rise Against, and he loaned us a guitar that he saw as sort of the epitome of him sort of making it. And it's relatively old guitar, but it was the first one that he got for free from, from Gibson. So they had gotten to a point mm-hmm. where Gibson, a humongous guitar company's, Handing them a 2000 thousand dollar guitar, and so this is the one that that really was the one where he felt legitimized that that you know maybe he wouldn't need to worry about a, a day job anytime soon and you know and so he had a really good story, and and um, three a.m. truck stop uh, on the Warp tour he he buys these uh, letters, these stickers and he puts them on the back and it says out of step and it's a minor threat tribute. And all the people on the bus were saying, you're ruining a $2,000 guitar. And he's like, no, no, I'm making it better. And uh, so <laughs> and right. he's broken the headstock off. It's got, you know, there's the, the it's got so much, a great story and means so much to him that um, those are the kind of things that I was looking for. People that really thought about what they, um, what they wanted to contribute to the exhibit. So i very much appreciate him and, and, most everybody else, of course, that, uh, loaned us some materials.
0: When were you first aware of local music? Like what was it? Those eighties bands, was it REO survivor sticks?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Wheaton and, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm 56. So I graduated high school in 83 and I joined material issue soon after I, I got out of high school. And, Jim was this, you know, ridiculously driven guy that, you know, bristled uh, against anything other than his eventual success. And he had a lot more drive than I did, even though I was kind of excited about it. And then when I tell people some of the stories of some of the gigs that we played, and I I played on uh, International Pop Overthrow, but, you know, my name is microscopic on it, <laughs> and, and that's fine. But um, but we did a little mini tour. He so desperately wanted, like, punk credentials or whatever it was that he, he aligned himself with these bands that he felt had credibility and so we we did a little mini tour with the band the effigies where we went to Detroit and back and went somewhere else and back and it you know it wasn't a tour so to speak other than we were gone for about a week and a half and and you know it was uh, we we get to Detroit and there are fans of the effigies that have the effigies tattooed on their lips and I'm like going this is crazy and I think the first ever real show I saw at uh, Metro was uh, the drummer of material issue at the time Danny Thompson was a big punk fan and we saw the exploited and Dykreutz in there, and it was the first real mosh pit I ever saw. And I stood in the balcony with my mouth open going, this is a culture that I've never even been you know expo- you know, expo- you know exposed to before. So that that really ingratiated me very early on to especially music in in the city of Chicago because some of the shows that we did with material Issue include opening up for Soul Asylum at Club Dreamers, opening yeah. up for Chris Isaac at the Metro, opening up for, the golden Palominos at the Metro opening up for the replacements on the Tim tour at the Vic. Oh man. We were the third, the first of three. It was a material issue, um, map of the world and then replacements. And, and we did, (laughs) we were so green. We're backstage milling around acting like, you know, like the, like the first time you've ever been in a real backstage before because they had all the the food laid out for the touring bands and we were told we couldn't eat it. So we're like, oh, okay, well. It's like kids pressed against the glass. <laughs> right. Right? So my parents actually went and, and saw that show in the balcony and, and – they weren't really enthusiastic with the show, but
0: you know, I, I think about some of well, those, your parents were looking at you on stage thinking, I wish he'd had a sandwich or something. He <laughs> He's, looks a little peaked. He could have used a meal before. At the him. time
1: I was pretty thin too. So yeah. So I had that experience, but then I realized that, uh, um, that uh, I needed to go and get an education, so I went and after uh, the drummer and I left Material Issue, I went and got a degree in music business from from Elmhurst College, and then uh, I formed the Lupins there, and then got all that other stuff happening. But so uh, I was I've been dialed into the sort of the local music thing from kind of the get go, uh, and and playing uh, opening up for Naked Ray Gun at the original Exit, and playing with Jeanless Jezebel and all these other bands uh, was. For a you know 19 year old kid was pretty crazy so it was it, I was indoctrinated and it made it so that when I started playing with the lupins more seriously later I was the old guy in the band and uh, <laughs> I had sort of been there if you will and so I, I I didn't take it all for granted the way I did the first time.
0: Let's talk about Dave Hoekstra. yeah. so you are the curator of this fantastic exhibit. Hoekstra is the writer, the creative force.
1: Yeah. So I needed somebody who could really get their arms around the story. Um, and, you know, he was a music and culture critic from the Sun-Times for 30 years. He's been writing books. Uh, he, is, he was deeply uh, interested in making sure that we were uh, diverse and comprehensive in this show. And so I had done two other exhibits with him when I was in Elmhurst, actually. He had written a book on disco demolition that was, you know, somewhat critical of the event, meaning looking at it with a new lens and Mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. It wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just a blow smoke up Steve Dahl's ass kind of book, even though Steve Dahl was involved. Um, And I was interested in looking, you know, looking at it. And so we turned that into an exhibit that I think, Kind of went a little further than the book did with mm-hmm. regards to how it's being viewed now, um, more contemporarily. I don't think Steve Dahl appreciated that sort of wrap-up component to it, but I'm, i i didn't do it for Steve, <laughs> and, and so I had this great experience. And I also did an expose of uh, Paul Knack and the rock photographer's career, and Dave Hoekstra wrote that as well. But it had been a, quite a long time, and so. Um, I reached out to him again and just said, "I've got this. We've got this idea. Is this something you'd be interested in?" Um, it's going to be a real challenge because uh, there's only so many stories we can tell in this space, and um, and he was game, and he was the right man for the job because. He toiled over this stuff. We had all these conversations, not so much about Head East, but for <laughs> for many, many artists. And and we kinda of thought about it like this, okay. If you think about um, however many artists or how many um bands come out in a particular genre, and one could say that Smashing Pumpkins was at the leading edge of a of a of a scene and all the bands that sort of filed in behind them um, and sort of jumped on that train a little bit. In, in our minds it was like they're smashing pumpkins and then there's a lot of these guys that kind of that were sort of following in their footsteps. And so we focused on the ones that were at the crest of the wave mm-hmm. and sort of we mention others, but we don't focus on them. Uh, not that they, they didn't sell a lot of records and not that they, they didn't have talent. It was more like we have all these stories to tell, so we need some sort of primer, some sort of uh, yeah. way of sort of saying, you know, uh, why John Prine is really important, but then there are however many folk artists out there uh, from Illinois as well. You
0: have to make sacrifices. You oh can't gosh, do this yeah. without doing making sacrifices. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: we knew and we knew that, but and and um, we also knew that uh, that you know there's there's been whole exhibits just on the blues from Chicago at the Chicago History Museum called Amplified. It was a really good show, and I had seen that a few years ago. And I'm like going, "Wow! If one exhibit is just going to be about the blues, how am I going to do a good job with?" You know, thirteen genres plus gear plus record labels plus, you know, talk about radio as well. So you know, we saw radio as sort of the delivery method of the music, at least traditionally, <laughs> and uh, and so that was the reason why we dedicated about ten percent of the space to create uh, a studio like this, so that we could invite DJs and podcast and podcast uh, people from all over the state to uh, serve as sort of. Um, you know this this vehicle for people in the in the gallery right now the gallerys full there are people mm-hmm. listening to us hello and <laughs> um, and I got the idea when I went to a couple of these um, natural history museums where they would put like guys in white lab coats dusting off dinosaur bones behind glass and you'd walk by and you go, Ooh, look, they're, uh-huh. they're, they're, they're doing is, is that their what thing. We are? are we
0: dusting off dinosaur yes. bones?
1: You and I essentially right now are dusting dinosaur bones for the people that are walking by. That was I, my, that's the metaphor. I'm rolling with that. <laughs> right, right. We should get some white lab coats. Uh-huh. But, uh, um, so that was my thought. I wanted a voyeuristic experience for the patrons coming through. And if they listen for 10 seconds or if they listen for, three hours, um, you know, they will have, uh, you know, this this experience of bearing witness to something happening that's right now, you know, and I, and I, I thought there was something unique and, and parallel to the way you first heard a song on AM radio um, when you were a kid or, or, or FM radio or whatever, however you were exposed to it. That immediacy to it, that, that idea of, of being tapped in and having access to that, I, I thought was worth sort of literally building a room within a gallery. This this space we're in right now did not exist. We built what we're sitting in. We put those windows in. We insulated this room. We added more light. In fact, I want to make sure, oh, yeah, our, our on-the-air light is on so people know awesome. something's happening. Right. right, and they can't come in. Um, but it also means that if there isn't anybody in here right now, we can stream um, internet radio um, that plays I- uh, Illinois music, and it's a little less um interesting for our patrons walking by when it's just a streaming internet and it's okay, a cool say, looking
0: studio but- it's co- it's a very cool looking studio yeah. and you built this from scratch yeah. and i swear to god this is nicer than a lot of the radio studios <laughs> i've worked out of <laughs> well uh i guess thank you
1: i'm sorry uh,
0: this is this is lovely,
1: and even the vintage equipment that we're looking at here, the VU meters are this this board in front of me. I don't know that much about vintage radio gear, was made in Illinois, and and we're piped through it, so the VU meters move when 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 we do our thing, which is kind of cool. Now we're we're using contemporary technology to podcast or broadcast Mm -hmm. in fact um, we've had to really up our internet um, and uh, we have a hot spot so that these uh, radio stations that come here and then broadcast to you know chicago aurora peoria they
0: they have the infrastructure to do that back to their home uh, the second i saw this announced lance the second all the details were shared i saw the information about the studio which was designed for broadcasters and podcasters. I mean, it it was put right out there, very specific podcasters are welcome. I think I reached out to you the day it was announced. You did.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that. And a lot of people saw the, the, the article that, that, uh, that was, that talked about this particular studio. And I really appreciate that. And we, we do need to, 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 to stretch it out because this exhibit's going to be up for nine months. And my concern of course, is that I don't know how many radio stations are on Illinois and I don't know how many of them have the wherewithal to come here, but I definitely want to pace them out through the, through, through the nine months we've, and we're never closed. That's the other thing. This museum is closed Thanksgiving, Christmas and new year's.
0: That's it. It's super cool. I've never, I've lived in Illinois my whole life. I've never been to the Abraham Lincoln (laughs) presidential library. It's lovely. It's only been here 16 years. So
1: this this building that you just walked in has, has been here 16 years. Uh, the Lincoln Home is here, of course. The tomb where you rub the nose is here. I mean, there's a lot of Lincoln sites in Springfield, and and you know, obviously, this is the seat of our state government, and, and it's a little strange. It's a strange town. I'm I'm, I'm getting my head around it, but uh, um, but it, it's 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 got a lot of it's got a lot going for it, and this I think this museum's got a lot
0: going for it too. Before we get into the exhibit, since we're on the topic of Springfield, mm-hmm. I want to maximize my time in Springfield. I want to ma- I want to make this trip count. Right. I am I am a stranger in your land, right. Lance, Lance okay. Tauser. <laughs> if I wanted to procure a horseshoe, mm. are, are there recommendations? Should I? Should we talk after the podcast? Well,
1: no, no. I mean. Uh what the locals really uh, go for is Darcy's Pint. Uh, you can go to um, Charlie Parker's, which is one of these. Um, it's 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 a diner. It's a you know a serious diner that is one of those in one of those Kwanzaa Hut kind of buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was featured on um, the drive ins yeah. and Drive-Ins Triple and D. dives. Thanks, yeah. Banks, yeah. Um, and so the horseshoe, for those that don't know, is is essentially some sort of bread or toast or bun, I guess you could say on the bottom level of your plate. Then they pile on some sort of meat product and, and and that can be anything from uh, to, to beef, to chicken, to whatever, to a burger burger ish kind of thing. But it's mostly like ground beef. I would say not so mm. much like a burger. Then they pile on, I mean, literally just heap on fries on the top of that. And then they pour cheese sauce over the top. So it's just this, and you eat it with a fork. uh, And uh, it it is, and they make half, they call them they call them ponies because that's a it is a mound of food it's a heart attack on a plate and they make a breakfast version which is even kind of more disturbing where they start with bread then they put sausage and then they put um, I think it's hash browns or fries but then they pour gravy on the top oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't know that much about a horseshoe. I think it was basically designed by a child that just said, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And then let's pour cheese on it. You know, I mean, but I mean, it is, it is a thing if you're going to dive in, uh, and I know you're a food guy. Um, I would say, you know, go to Darcy's pint and, uh, order a horseshoe and, and see how you do.
0: The exhibit. Here we are again, we're, we're broadcasting from the Abraham Lincoln presidential library, the state of sound museum exhibit. I did my cursory run through before we started recording. I already saw what has to be one of the coolest things of the exhibit, the Howland Wolf gun license.
1: Right? So here that, there's a really lovely story. So Holland Wolf's daughter's name is Betty Kelly and she lives in the suburbs of Chicago. And when, when I first reached out to her, um, what's, what's kind of sad is that she just didn't have a lot of materials. And I, I think she assumed that I wanted something big and sexy or something really, um, you know, sort of iconic, if you will. And, you know, the, the, the long and short of it is that, uh, Chester Burnett, uh, Howlin' Wolf, he passed away in the mid seventies, I believe. Um, you know, he didn't make a lot of money during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he didn't get, uh, Put into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame until '91, as as an influencer, and um, so uh, Betty was 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 really lovely, and she just said, "Well, uh, you know, here's, I don't have much, but I would be willing to loan you what I have." And and actually, what I think is really amazing about the materials that she loaned us was how uh, personalized I think they are. So yeah, you can't go wrong with a 1966 gun license. Um, Helen Wolf carried a handgun because. You do. He was
0: a black musician on the road <laughs> getting underpaid and ripped off by label people, venue owners. Yeah, I get Right.
1: It. Isn't that awesome? Uh, his shaving brush, very personal item. Uh, harmonica in the key of A, which is a big blues um, key. And and two things that ha- to, she had from her collection that happened after his, his passing included um, his rock and roll hall of fame plaque from 91. And then in 1994, um, the U S postage put out a bunch of uh, blues artists on stamps. And so she got one of these commemorative, um, sort of plaques that commemorated, um, his postage stamp. So, I mean, I, I, again, I am deeply humbled by the fact that, um, people were willing to loan us things that, that they thought about what they wanted to loan us. And, and if they didn't have much, uh, I still think those are pretty impactful, even though the the size of a gun, licenses like that, you know, it's not as
0: it is. It is very personal. It yeah. is something that the public would never, ever see. Yeah. Uh, to your point earlier about artists who moved to Chicago and made their, made their career out, or Illinois, forgive yeah. me. Sorry. Homer focused. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Helen uh, Wolf moved to Chicago because sure. of chess records yeah. in 1951. Would you agree? Lance Tazer, curator of the state of sound museum exhibit that smokestack lightning has the coolest guitar intro of oh, all yeah. blue songs. It's just one of the cool. You, you can't get much cooler than that. I would say his voice
1: that uh, you, you know it, that had so much soul in it that just rips through your spine. Mm-hmm. The that riff is unbelievable, and there's even a harmonica solo in the middle of that song too. I mean, it is it is a perfect tune and. Uh, and, you know, I think he doesn't get an, enough credit, uh, ab- about being so unique. And, and he, he had, he was a six foot three or six foot four guy, um, 250 pounds. And his voice was like 500 pounds. His voice out of his was mouth. supernatural. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, it was like, you know, melt your face. Uh, and, and I think, you know, um, for us, we realized that um, Muddy Waters, and I'll tell you a quick story about Muddy Waters. So um, I had reached out to his son, uh, Joe Morganfield, and about uh, we were going back and forth about what he might want to loan us. And then he had a heart attack and passed away himself. Joe Morganfield at age 56. My, oh. He's the same age as me. Uh, and, and so, you know, at that point I was, I wasn't going to call up his sister. I wasn't going to, I just, we made sure that, Mo- uh, Muddy Waters is represented in the exhibit in whatever way we could, but the, the approach was not to just uh, feature memorabilia. The idea was to borrow things from the families or from the artists themselves. And so he's in here, he's in the, he's in the documentaries. We have some, we have some produced or published materials there, but uh, that there was, you know, again, John Pryne passed away during uh, during COVID, right? And his family thought real long and hard about one of the what they wanted to lend us, and they decided to lend us this collection of of knickknacks or tchotchkes or doodads or whatever you want to call it. That he so when he stopped uh, drinking, when he got sober, he got stage fright, and um, he would have a little card table on the side of the stage, and he'd be playing, and every once in a while he'd get a little wigged out, and he'd look over, and here on this little uh, card table was goofy little hot dog figurines and, and pictures of his kids or grandkids or coins and goofy little things that helped him recenter and Archie comic book and an Archie, yeah, Archie comic book, you know, again, uh, these are things that he would do. And he, and he always put a quarter nickel dime penny on there. He had some rituals and things. So they, they actually took a picture of how, he would have done it and they sent it to us and we tried to lay it out as best we could.
0: I I love the personal approach because to your point about memorabilia, we could see that stuff on the internet. Oh yeah. We could see whatever we want to see, but it it is that connection to the artist that we don't get on the internet that we need to see come to life here. I love that stuff. And John Prine, I asked you the question earlier about what was your first, understanding of local music now that i think about it for me it was probably john prine because mm. that's what my parents liked oh yeah my sure. parents i think before i was aware of cheap trick before i was aware of sticks it, it was john prine and sure here's a guy i mean you said it he died in april of last year grammy winner uh, sam stone is still one of those monumental angel from Mon- montgomery I mean, these mm. are monumental recordings yeah i mean he's he's also
1: sort of considered sort of the musician's musician too mm-hmm. as much as he had legions of fans but he uh, was so well regarded so well respected he was obviously a good guy uh, you know his relationship with Steve Goodman, I mean the connection to the old school uh, old town school of folk music um, he just you know um, seemed very genuine. I never got a chance to meet him unfortunately but uh, his family was was very was, was very uh, supportive of the of the exhibit we wanted to make a big deal out of him and I couldn't be more proud of, of, of showing those materials
0: let's talk about Steve Goodman because in the exhibits you go right from prime to Steve Goodman you have a, another one of the coolest things in the exhibit specific to Steve Goodman
1: yeah uh, his actually I think both things are equal uh, so we, we of course um, we spoke to his daughter, uh, Rosanna and she was seven years old when he passed away. He was 36. I can't imagine. Uh, and so, you know, she's been talking about her father for her entire life. Uh, I don't know how old she is, but I can't do that math, but, um, <laughs> She, um, and it would have been real easy for her just to grab a guitar and send it to us, Uh, but, you know, um, City of New Orleans uh, is one of his most iconic songs, and she had uh, a handwritten uh, lyric sheet of, of, of that, and then she had his... Cubs jacket, the one, the one that he always wore whenever he went uh, to Wrigley Field. And he, of course he's, he's, you know, so beloved in Chicago for, for the Go Cubs Go uh, tune. A, so, a dying Cubs fan, die, dying yeah. Cubs
0: fan. I can't even say that. Last dying Cubs fans, last request. Yeah, yeah, And Go Cubs Go. I mean, these are Amazing. so much a part of baseball culture, right. Chicago culture, Illinois culture. Right. The city of New Orleans, just seeing the handwritten lyrics. I mean, mm. you can't put a price on that. No. that. That is that is invaluable. Well, it's it's
1: interesting because we uh, part, and I will tell you a little bit of ner- uh, museum nerdy stuff. Is that anything that we borrow, anything that we take into our door, um, the lender has to apply a, an insurance value for it. And so, how do sense. you? How how do you, I mean? God forbid this place burned down. You know, uh, there has to be, we have to be accountable for the materials sure. that we have. Well, we have the Gettysburg Address in our vault. You know, we we have some amazing stuff. Um, Wait, that's here? One of five is here,
0: yeah. Okay, we're going to look at that it's after. Not, that.
1: It's not out. Oh. It's kind of like, uh, <laughs> it comes out for two weeks a year. Got it. Around the time of the, in November, when he... You know when you said it, but um, so yeah, it's not out, but um, we have it in our vault. Uh, but um, so you know, we go through this process, and and I think a lot of people are like, I have no idea how to put a value to handwritten lyrics from, from that, and we cannot we cannot have it appraised. We we physically cannot be involved in appraising anything because there's a conflict right, of interest. Of course, in. but we always tell people, look, we're well insured. You know, uh, Gettysburg Address, I think, is insured for $20 million. You know, we can handle it. You just need to, you know, think about assigning a number to it that would at least make you feel better about you know, loaning it to us. And in most cases, a lot of, actually the, the one thing I wanted to mention was um, I took the three hour drive back up to Chicago for a lot of local pickups. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we had been shipping things around. Uh, we use art shippers for fragile stuff. And, and uh, Miles Davis's trumpet came through from Los Angeles. Miles so,
0: Davis's trumpet. It's
1: uh, How cool is that? That's from the 1980s. That was made for him. It's got his name on the bell. But I I rented a big white van because I had made essentially made all these acquaintances, I had I convinced these people to loan us their, that material, and I basically spent a week in Chicago driving around to everybody from uh, Howland Wolf's daughter's house to Jimmy Chamberlain's house to Jennifer Hudson's house to Buddy Guy's club, uh, and so on and so forth, and in sort of um, you know meeting them for. 10, 15 minutes, taking possession of these materials, had a little paperwork to do, and kind of moving on. And it was a very, very interesting experience to to, you know, to be emailing and speaking to these people and then showing up at, you know, I went to Ramsey Lewis's uh, apartment right there by Lake Michigan. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and it, it was just actually he got on the phone and gave me directions because there's a lot of, it's been a while since I've driven in Chicago. Uh, and uh, he, he's on the phone telling me what road not to take because it's going the wrong direction That's or something. Amazing. Yeah,
0: it's great. Stories. What, what impresses me about hearing that <laughs> is how DIY oh, yeah. so much of the, I mean, we come to this very Professional, very immersive museum exhibit. And what people don't see is the stuff you're describing, like that scrappy acquisition.
1: Well, and we could have, we could very well have uh, made shipping arrangements, I suppose. But you're talking about Ramsey Lewis, who lives in downtown Chicago. We'd have to have. You know, somebody come and pick it up, a courier, and then take it to a shipping company, and that's three hours away. And we just talk about the logistics and how cold it was. Well, some some things I just had to uh, to deal with with shippers on, but uh, the Chicago people, um, I had made this sort of personal connection with them, and I thought, well. You know, A, I could, you know, have, especially if it was something that was very hardy and, and wasn't fragile, they, they could go to a FedEx office place and have FedEx box it up and ship it to us. And, and some people did that. Uh, but a lot of people were like, yeah, I mean, I'd love to meet you. Come by. And uh, I just made it all these arrangements. Um, probably one of, the, one, of the, one of the ones that really touches me is um, we reached out to Dan Folgerberg's widow, Jean, who lives in the, about as far as you can get, Deer Island, Maine. Oh wow. Uh, I I actually don't know where it is but I looked at a map once and it's it, it's pretty remote. And when I initially reached out to her she was really apprehensive about loaning us anything. Uh, she had this his sort of Dan's number 1 guitar which he had nicknamed Buck which is a Martin, beautiful Martin guitar. It still had the same strings on it from when he played. Um, and she says it's never left the house, you know. And I am like, okay, no problem, no problem. And so over a period of time I just said I oh, we'll just want to make sure that he's represented in the in the exhibit and she had talked about loaning us uh, one of his signature guitars that he never played. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not really what we're looking for. Uh, but again, you know.
0: looking for that personal.
1: Exactly. And so on her own, I did not cajole her. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't beg. I didn't do anything. She came to it on her own. She said, you know what? I'm going to loan you the guitar. Uh, I'm also going to loan you this lovely little uh, conducting baton that was his father's, who uh, was a municipal band leader in Pekin, Illinois and Peoria and... Because um, Fogelberg was from Peoria, right? Yep. Yeah. Yes, he was. So again, another good middle-of-the-state story mm-hmm. along with Allison Krauss and some of these others. REO Speedwagon. Um, mm-hmm. Not not the entire state is not, you know, Chicago-focused, although I tell you, people get a chip on their shoulder. Uh, you get you get maybe an hour or two outside of Chicago, people are like, oh, yeah, you're from Chicago, you know. you know, And, and like, uh, you start to see so many Cardinals fans in Illinois and it's like seemingly very... Unsettling, But anyway, back to Gene Fogelberg. So, so uh, she finally says, you know, I will loan you the guitar, um, but she's in Deer Island, Maine, and I contact an art shipper, and they said, we can't get there. We just physically can't get there. She, wow. she drove three hours from Deer Island, Maine to some city, I think it was in, in Maine still, uh, in order to deliver the guitar and the materials to an art shipper that, could then um, package it up and ship it to us. So, I, again, I'm a, a extremely indebted to the people that loaned us these materials.
0: The breadth of sounds and styles in history represented here. I, I think you did a good job. You talked about those artists that are at the front of the crest to tell the story. House music is represented here. Cause it was
1: invented here. Right. I mean, it's not like, so disco is represented earth, wind and fire. And it was obviously also a soul. So they're in two different sections. I mean, Curtis Mayfield, Sam cook, earth, wind and fire. They dip their toes in several different. So they show up in a couple of different areas, but house music, you know, out of the ashes of disco came house music from, you know, uh, and Frankie knuckles is represented. Uh, we loaned his tape deck and his turntable from, you know, his career from the Frankie knuckles foundation. We, 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 I literally went to Derek Carter's really, really cool studio on Halstead in Chicago. And um, and I also I met Steve Sokurley in the parking lot of a mire. <laughs> I'm not kidding. These are all part of that that trip. I mean it's it's amazing. I think that's really important. And 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 we can't not mention the ministry crazy looking microphone stand. So that was shipped, I think it was in, in it comes in a road case, um, because it's a touring prop it, and ministry uses a lot of very macabre mm-hmm. um things and this this particular uh, microphone stand is one of several that were made by a company in new york called um uh, oh god I, it doesn't matter who made it um but uh, it looks kind of like uh, the cross between a, an oversized syringe and sort of skeleton bat wings made out of
0: metal with a human skull on the top. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing it justice. It's crazy looking. Well, I think you're painting a fair enough picture of it. It, <laughs> it is quintessential ministry.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And apparently the the middle t- uh, clear acrylic tube uh, was dialed into their lighting show and would do all sorts of crazy things as well. But as I was mentioning, the the, the fun story is that when it showed up, uh, there was some liquid inside that sort of added to the to the light show. I guess it needed liquid to do something, but it was about a third way down and it had been leaking. <laughs> and uh, our our curators and our, our conservators here, you know, they're they're you know the, basically the red light started flashing. They were freaking out. They wanted to get like you know hazmat suits on and goggles, and we didn't know what it was. And we called ministry's manager and, and, and said, do you have any idea what the fluid that's leaking out of there? And they said, no, I, I just asked Alan. he thinks it's the same liquid in snow globes. And I'm like, pretty sure it's not that, but okay. <laughs> um, and so uh, uh, we finally get a hold of the guy who made it in Brooklyn, and, he, and we had a whole team around, and, uh, and we're like, oh, oh, what is it? What is it? What is it? Because I mean, my assumption was it was either like uh, you know, embalming fluid or something really sinister, and it turned out to be baby oil. So, Maybe oil. So we were able to clean it up, we drained it, and then we, um, we put it in an artifact case and we've lit it up. And it's, it is probably uh, one of the more unique pieces in here. And, it, and it's got its own story. It's been around the world uh, on the defibrillator tour in 2012, as well as another tour or two, apparently. And it had been sort of taken off um, the tour and was sitting in the lobby of their offices in Los Angeles.
0: Significant band. Oh yeah. In the history Talk of about
1: ones at the at the crest, yeah. you know, of, of that wave. I mean you, you um you know, very, very important. And and um, so for for us, uh, we, we we reached out to Kanye West, he didn't respond. We reached out to Chance Rapper. He was actually I had Chance Rapper's father's email, but he was in the middle of changing managers and Really embroiled in something, and I would—I was really hoping that chance. But then we ended up getting something from Common. We got something from Jennifer Hudson. Well, we no, get, you didn't
0: just get something from Common. Yeah,
1: some cool stuff. Yeah, so we have the the, the custom made Prada suit that he wore at the Oscars in 2015 when he sang with John Legend from the song that, in the movie that he actually starred in, from the movie Selma. Mm -hmm. The song's called Glory. And um, so he loaned us the suit. He also loaned us the conductor score and some other stuff. He actually loaned us a, a movie prop to a movie I wasn't even familiar with called Just Right, where he was in a romantic comedy as a basketball player with Queen Latifah. So cool. Yeah. So, yeah, again... I couldn't be more uh, proud of this show. And it was a huge team. It wasn't, I mean, I know I get a lot of credit for putting these things together, but um, we have a a full tech team here. We have uh, curators and registrars and conservators and, um, you know, people that, that can, completely converted our gallery into a backstage experience. I mean, there's, there's fake roll up doors here. There are fake freight elevators. There's a, there's a, there's a fans, like a, like a big warehouse fan spinning this really just a video monitor. Um, we, we, you know, we really kind of went all out with it and I, I'm pretty, pretty pleased with that. I hope people. Uh, it's get so, well, it's so
0: fun. When you walk into the Abraham Lincoln presidential library, there's this main rotunda area mm. and to the right, you see a facsimile of the white house in the middle of the yeah, floor yeah. you see a log cabin and then to the left there's the state of sound entrance which is it greets you with you know, tower stacks of amplifiers and speakers and, yeah
1: they actually move there's a good story about that so um we we typically dress the gallery entrance in order to entice people to come in mm-hmm. and and that has has been different sort of scenic things and so this being the state of sound we thought well let's make these big tall speaker stacks like they used to have in the seventies with just lots of speakers. Mm-hmm. But I wanted somebody to figure out how we could make it. So the speakers actually undulate without making noise because we have, we have piped music in the, in the plaza. And so, um, and, and I also wanted the VU meters to move and the led graphic EQ to do things. And so we found this really clever chap here who does a lot of work with uh, local theater. And he realized that he could actually send a signal. And you probably know this better than, than most at such a low frequency that it would drive the speakers, but we can't hear it because it's so low. Brilliant. I I know. And it drives the vu meters and it drives all the other things. So I'm like, Oh my God, it's brilliant. And so, yeah, we have a very animated entrance to the exhibit. Um, You know, the, the, the attention to the lighting and everything else, I think, um, you know, was really, really great. So yeah. And, and uh, the museum has gotten behind it wholeheartedly. The gift shop sells t-shirts and, Coffee mugs and hats, and it's sort of like uh, Spaceballs. The you know, the, you know, the, the scene in Spaceballs when they they do merchandising. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm humbled by uh, you know how uh, supportive the museum is.
0: Again, as far as merch goes and people buy, buying merch, it goes back to that that pride, that boastfulness. I mean, when you meet someone in public for the first time or meet someone at a bar or at a party, one of the first questions exchanged is, "Where are you from?" <laughs> right, and it it. it where we're from defines us. Yeah, it, it, It's everything.
1: It's sort of a grounding cultural, you know, sort of a place to start, you know, your, your perspective on somebody.
0: You mentioned Curtis Mayfield. The yeah. closest I ever got to the Mayfield family was his son did IT for a radio station I worked for.
1: Which one? Uh, Shea? Uh, Curtis has two, I think. His yeah. name is Curtis. Oh, Curtis. Oh, Curtis Jr. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He's, uh, we, we borrowed materials from Shay C-H-E-A-A. One of his other sons, uh, um, super cool guy. Yeah,
0: when you see the Curtis Mayfield, what is it like a jumpsuit? It's it's not a jumpsuit.
1: It's it's a it's a it's a flared it's a paisley flared uh, pants and matching vest combo. They're not connected. They're two different pieces. From the early 1970s. Uh, And we borrowed that from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, The family had a a few pieces, but they didn't have any sort of... uh, I I really wanted to place him in the space, and so they had had, uh, donated this to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, and they loaned it to me. So
0: So when you see it, you realize, wow, Curtis Mayfield was kind of a petite man. But when you think about Curtis Mayfield, when you think about Superfly, you think... Monster. He had such a, a large, looming presence. Yeah,
1: all that coming from that little frame. Yeah, and actually, Dave Hoekstra interviewed him several times while he was live. He actually interviewed him after the accident when he, uh, when the lighting material fell mm-hmm. on him in the nine in ninety three. I think it was. Is that right? Anyway, um, so Dave uh, knew him very well. Uh, actually, we started our own little podcast called the State of Sound Podcast, where we're we made such amazing friends uh, putting this exhibit together. Sure. We thought. Here's an opportunity for them to come in, talk a little bit about their connection to Illinois and the art and tell us the story behind the artifact that they loaned us, um, and, and sort of spin off from there. So we we've only started with two uh, I mean we've only published two. One is uh, Tim McElrath and the other one is Kevin
0: Cronin from Mario Speedwagon. I, in radio parlance, those are good gets. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. But we've we've taped an interview with Shay Mayfield, we taped an interview with Alex Dixon, Willie Dixon's grandson. Wow. We taped an interview with um uh, oh, boy, I can't remember now. Oh, Rosanna Goodman. Um, oh, wow. Um, so, and, uh, you know, over the... Cur- we're going to do them every other week uh, for the run of the exhibit, and we're going to try to make sure that we we, we get, um, you know, somebody represented from each music genre. Uh, I, I'm not quite brave enough to ask Al Jorgensen for an interview, but
0: uh, we might have to do that. I've only interviewed him once. I thought he was charming. Was he? Mm-hmm. He just frightens me. Understandable. <laughs> you, you mentioned Willie Dixon. Is there a Willie Dixon... Representation, yeah. I so it.
1: their family loaned us um, handwritten lyrics and a commemorative plaque that was given to him on his seventy-fifth birthday from Chess Records. Whoa! So uh, again, the, the <laughs> you'd love this story. So they said, "Hey, we actually have an electric stand-up bass that we could loan you." I'm like, "Oh, that's that's cool." And then they told me the story, and they said, "Well, Willie never played it. Um, let me just tell you, it's pink." And uh, the guys from the Grateful Dead gifted it to him. And he saw it and went, yeah, I'm never going to play with it. <laughs> I almost wanted to borrow it just to have that just story. Yeah. But a pink electric stand-up bass given to him by the
0: Grateful Dead. I, I would say Willie Dixon is hands down one of the most important songwriters. Oh, my gosh. Of,
1: like and that's what that commemoration is. It's, it's, it's the songs that he
0: wrote for Chess. Um, He's one of those group. guys who, if you don't know the name, and really you should, if you don't know the name, you know the songs. Oh, yeah. You, you know Backdoor Man. You know Hoochie Coochie Man. You know Spoonful, Rainbow. Little Red Rooster. Oh, yeah. I mean, these have gone on from being blues standards to rock and roll standards. Sure,
1: yeah. I, 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 the other thing that they offered me was uh, something that I couldn't fit, which was uh, they still have Willie's Cadillac, that he got from Muhammad Ali. Oh, God. I mean,
0: how <laughs> cool is that? <laughs> that?
1: Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I really would like to borrow that, but I can't quite fit it in the gallery. <laughs> uh, you know, and every once in a while I had to say no. I mean, the guys from Disturbed uh, wanted to loan me a baby grand piano, and it was one that they did The Sound of Silence oh, wow. uh, with, and I'm like, that's your take on that tune is
0: amazing. I don't have room for a baby grand piano. But you do have... A Dan Donegan guitar. I do.
1: I went to his house, picked it up. Yeah. He's super cool. He is a super, and his, and his wife's very nice. Uh, uh, All, I mean, seeing these people where they live and, and uh, you know, and, and seeing them in their space and how welcoming they were. I, 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 you know, I, maybe I just assumed they'd be more guarded or maybe I just assumed they'd be more elitist or snooty, but they were, they were all super genuine for the most part. See, and this is
0: why I've always been thrilled to be involved with local music why i think it's so important because the people those nice people who are playing the small clubs now could end up in a museum like sure. this someday and like to be able to watch the growth to be there from the beginning that embryonic stage of musicianship and watch the evolution i yeah. think is one of the most fun things yeah imaginable
1: i, I went out to jeff bizotti's house he lives out in. he lives way out way out mm-hmm. and he rescues raccoons and yeah. things. And um he was in the middle of like rehabbing his house and so half of the house wasn't even like livable and he was you know and uh just I, I,
0: I had lunch with him for Carquin Carney a couple years ago. Yeah. I was with his wife. Wife, yeah. And they were trying to convince me that I should move out there. It's so fun. It is really
1: way, way West, uh-huh. uh, in the middle of nowhere. I picked a bad day too. Uh, it was snowing. Uh, and he has one of these really long driveways. In fact, I almost got stuck on Rick Nielsen's driveway in Rockford. He's got one of those where you go through a gate and then you're sort of in a wooded area and he does have a turnaround at the top, but somebody was parked in the turnaround and I was doing that whole jockey after I,
0: after I like Austin a- Powers in the Zamboni. Yeah.
1: Oh, almost. And, uh, I, I'd gotten really amazing guitar and the sweater from him and I hung out with him a little bit. And then I'm in this big white van going back and forth three inches trying to get out of his driveway. It was sort of, you know, escape from Rick Nielsen's driveway. And And were
0: you thinking, I hope he's not watching from the window. I hope he's not watching. Please don't be watching.
1: (laughs) I imagine he was, he was definitely watching when I got there because, um, I was a little early and he was doing, um, zoom interviews for their upcoming Australian, uh, tour. And, uh... And his manager says, "Well, you know, he's only got a window between here and here. He's going to take a break, and and then he can. Uh, and then he's got to get back on the Zoom calls." And I'm like, "Okay." So I got there like ten minutes early, and I'm just sitting there <laughs> outside his house, waiting until it was time. And apparently, he had finished up early because he kind of leaned out of his house and gave me the big wave in, and so um, I knew it was safe to go in. But uh, I, you know, again, I had a, a really uh, great experience, um, you know, making connections with these folks, and and uh, and and for each one of these, uh, you know, they were. Um, they were, uh, you know, they were, they were super, they, they care not so much about their legacy. They care more about the patrons. And that's really all I ever care about. When it was all said and done, I tried to figure out how to create something that I think the patrons will get something out of. It's not necessarily prestige. It's not, oh, you know, it has to do with whether we're telling good stories, whether, whether we're, we're opening minds and whether the patrons will get something out of this show.
0: I love it. All right. So the state of sound, a world of music in Illinois is at the Abraham Lincoln presidential library. And you said it's basically like the postal service. It it never stops.
1: We are open seven days a week, other than Thanksgiving, Christmas and new years. And, um, we're open nine to five every day. And if you are at least if you have one vaccine, you can get in for free, even though it's usually 15 bucks oh, wow! to get in. So you guys could have come in and flashed your cards. You didn't need me to give you your, your, your access, but um, uh, yeah. So, and, and I mean, that's this only, is a, ju-
0: this is a value at any price. Oh yeah.
1: Uh, June and I'm sorry, May and June um, free to get in with anybody who's been at least, had one vaccine. And so, yeah, I mean, and you know, now that we're in the bridge phase, we're at 60% capacity, we're going to have maybe 750 people, maybe a thousand people through today. So wow, it's, you know, we're, it's, we're taping this on a Saturday when it's when we're, when we're busy and, and and that's great. We love to see people through here. I think it's a a world-class museum, not necessarily the exhibit that I did, but um, you know, it's a, it's a museum dedicated to, I think, you know, the, the best president because he's, he, he's an example about how people can, can uh, start out on the wrong side of history and over a period of time end up on the right. Cause that's how, that's how people evolve. Nobody's going to have a conversation where I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat, which I'm not, but I mean, and try to convince you to my side in one conversation, people get there in their own ways through mm-hmm. time. And he's a great example of that. I mean, he, he, um, I, you know, I, I knew a bit about uh, Lincoln before, um, before coming here, and, but, and I'm not a historian. I'm not a PhD, but um, you know, I've garnered a lot of appreciation for, you know, what he means to our country. And, and it's, you know, he's not, he's not from Illinois either. He's, he's, he's like, he's like uh, Willie Dixon. He's, he's born, like Willie Dixon. He's exactly born in Kentucky, right. but he, but he really launched his career here in Illinois. So we're, we, you know, we got to claim him.
0: Lance Tauser, i I think if we've learned anything today, uh, you're probably my most interesting friend. <laughs> oh God, boy, that bar needs to go up, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the state of sound, we we didn't talk about everything because that that would spoil some of the fun. No, no, I, I think people thing. need to come here and experience this walk around. Uh, I'm going to make up for my quick trip before we recorded and, and really linger and kind of take my time and take it all in here. Uh, excellent job. This, this is this is fantastic. As a music fan, as an Illinois lifelong resident. I, this is exactly what I wanted this to be.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming. Uh, we, you know, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to do your podcast here. This is really what we were hoping for—to have uh, people that, um, you know, have good stories to tell in this space while patrons are walking by. Uh, I've really enjoyed, the, uh, you know, um, people's faces when they're listening in. Um, I think it's a good experience. Okay.